Ephesians 6. The whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace. And Paul, since chapter 4, has been urging us on the walking part, to live a life that is worthy of those riches that we have in Christ, of our position in Christ that we learned about in chapters 1 through 3. And we can't walk worthy of that life without being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul has been explaining that the Spirit-filled life of submission encompasses all areas of our life. It's how we shine as lights in a dark world. And that includes our family life. And so, in chapter 6, Paul has been addressing that family dynamic. Last week, we looked at how a child lives out this submission to their parents, and this morning, we will look at how a parent embraces a life of submission and how they deal with their children. So, I'll begin in verse 1, but our story will be in the very lengthy verse 4 this morning. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, in verse 4, after addressing the children in verses 1 through 3, Paul addresses fathers. All you fathers out there, I have something to say to you. Now, this does bring to mind the question, why only the fathers? Is it okay for mothers to provoke their children to wrath? Is it only the father's responsibility to bring his children up? Well, in Jewish and Gentile cultures of Paul's day, the father was the absolute head of the home, and he was solely responsible for the education and discipline of his children. While a mother could influence her children, they did not have enough authority like the father had to make decisions on education and discipline. So, what Paul is specifically addressing here, therefore, is the authority of a father in his culture. So, in light of that, while Paul isn't addressing mothers here, his words apply to anyone who is an authority figure in the home. So, who is the authority figure on children in the home? Well, verse 1 already answered that for us. Children, obey your parents. The parents, because obedience and later we see honor, are to be given to both mother and father. Authority is given by God to both parents. And so, while Paul needs to address the cultural authority figure in his time and the abuses that they might take with that authority, that does not negate God's command in verse 1. When we look at the structure for the family given to us in 1 Corinthians 11, because of structural problems that were happening in the church at Corinth, the issue was a funny one. It had to do with face coverings of all things, not applicable at all to the last few years in our life. And he told them, the ladies, when they had come down off the hill, the ladies, when they had gotten saved, they would say, well, we don't have to abide by culture anymore, and they'd take their veils off. And so the problem is, is that the only people who walked around without a veil in Corinth were the prostitutes who had come down off the hill on top of where the goddess of Aphrodite was being worshipped. And so when these people were walking around going, I'm free in Christ, I don't need to do this, the husbands are going, but you dishonor me because everyone thinks you're a prostitute. And so there was this huge debate. And Paul says, put your veil on. There's a structure and it needs to be obeyed and adhered to. 
He gives the structure for the family here in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, we have a clear structure for family life here. Christ is the head, the husband submits to Christ, and the wife submits to the husband. So what's interesting here is that nothing is said about the husband having sole responsibility for the education and the training of the children. Based on Ephesians 6 verses 1 and 2, therefore, we must deduce that children submit to both husband and wife equally, which gives both parents the responsibility to cooperate in their children's training. This conclusion also makes sense when we consider all of the Proverbs that discuss how a wise child listens to his mother and father, but a foolish one doesn't listen to his mother and father. Therefore, we conclude that couples must work together on child-rearing decisions. Neither the husband or the wife is to trample their spouse's thoughts, but both are to yield to the Lord's wisdom from His Word as they seek the best path forward for their kids. Now, if I had a dollar bill for every time I had married couples in my office and one of them said, well, they don't understand the kids like I do, I'd have a lot of dollars. It wouldn't buy me much in this inflated economy, but I'd have a lot of dollar bills. I tell kids all the time, particularly teenagers, I said, did you pick your parents? No. I said, then who picked your parents? It's a fascinating thought to kind of ponder. God did. So ultimately, when you're frustrated with them, or you don't like the way they're handling things, or you don't want to be under their authority, who is your real problem with? The Lord. The Lord. Why did you give me parents like this? Why did you put me in a situation like this? I don't like this situation. I don't want to stay in this situation. I explain to young people, I say, listen, you didn't choose your DNA, right? Like, I did not choose my DNA. I'll make fun of my dad a little bit right now, but every time I look down at my hands, I say, hi, dad, because they look exactly like my father's hands. Every time I see it on a table or I just see it in front of me, I'm like, that's my father's hands. I had nothing to do with that. I didn't, you know, as a child growing up, see my father's hands and go, what fine specimen of hands here? I'm going to craft my hands and make them just like my dad's. But there they are. There they are. I'm not tall for a man, right? And maybe perhaps that's why I married a short woman, so I could feel better about myself. But <laughs> I'm not tall. I would hate the fact that every time I'd come to class in the new year, you'd look around and be like, every guy is taller than me. And as an athlete, that was even graded a little bit more because I had to work extra hard to hit the ball farther, to throw harder, to run faster, or whatever it might be. And some other dude, you know, just tower above me, you know, shooting the basketball, and he just goes, boom. But I didn't make myself that way. God did. And at some point, there are certain things that you have to come to terms with about your DNA, about who your parents are, If you're a young person, you have to come to terms with that. Be okay with being short. Be okay with how your hands look or how your hair looks or 
your body structure. You have to learn to go, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Because God loves me. You know, I, I'm not the type of person that says every baby is beautiful. <laughs> but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the God who looks at you thinks you're beautiful. He has no issues with you. He's not, you don't wake up in the morning and he goes, can't you do anything about that? No, he made you and he didn't make any mistakes. And he loves you, smiles at you when he sees you. When you're a parent, there's some similarities to that. You didn't fashion your child. You didn't make them to be what they are. So you're not the authority on them. You don't have the right to say, well, I know my kid better than my husband or better than my wife does, and therefore, I don't care what you have to say about this, or your input isn't as valuable as my input into how we're going to raise our children. You have limited, you had extremely limited input into their DNA. I have six amazing kids. Four of them have my DNA, two of them don't. But even the ones that have my DNA, there are times I look at them and I go, where did that come from? I didn't teach you that, and that's not my personality. It's not my, my way of doing life. There are times I'll have conversations and hear them give an explanation for why they did what they did, and I'm like, I would have never thought that. What kind of reasonable person thinks like that? There needs to be an ownership and an understanding of the fact that they are not mine. They are God's. He made them fearfully and wonderfully. And therefore, it took, at some point in time, 99.9% of us who have kids, at some point, made a decision and had that child with someone else's cooperation, hopefully willing. You don't get to decide that child's mine. You don't get to decide I don't need their input. You have to work together. You have to work together. Both of you need to yield to the Lord's wisdom from His Word and to seek the best path forward for your kids. Now, what does Paul say to the authority figures in the home? Well, he gives one negative command and then one positive command. The negative command comes first. Do not provoke your children to wrath. You can provoke anyone else's children to wrath all you want, (laughs) but not your own. The phrase provoke to wrath is one word, and it means to cause someone to become quite angry. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it carries the idea of repeated goading that produces resentment. Listen, you're a sinner. If you're a parent, you're a sinner. You're going to make mistakes that upset your kids. It's going to happen. That's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul is saying is that you must not demean your children to the point that they're stirred up to respond because you've provided no way of escape for them. No way forward. No way out. If you hear your child verbalizing things like, nothing I ever do will matter. I never do anything right. 
as selfish and as short-sighted as those comments may be, as manipulative as those comments might be, you should do some self-examination. Because our children should always know there's a way of escape from the foolishness that's in their heart. Look at Proverbs 22.15 with me. We see, and you might want to keep your finger in Proverbs because we'll reference it a couple times this morning. We see bumper stickers like in the back of cars all the time, right? My child is a grade A student, or my child is an honor roll, or my child is a black belt, or my child is this. And of course, in the wonderful attitude of our society in the United States, we have bumper stickers that say, my child beat up your honor student. I'm grateful that when Jesus comes back, it'll be a different kind of freedom, not a freedom to be foolish. But here it says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. That is a bumper sticker all of us could put on our cars about our kids. Proverbs 22:15a: my child has foolishness bound up in his heart, because it would be true for each of us. Now, what is foolishness? Foolishness here is not the idea that we think of of silliness or just nonsense. It means impiety, a lack of the fear of God. When we read the book of Proverbs, you'll see these words, foolish and wise, foolishness and wisdom contrasted many times. The Bible tells us what about wisdom? What's the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the starting point of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, is to hate evil. So when someone has a godly fear, that godly reverence, it means they love what God loves and they hate what God hates, right? So this idea that's being conveyed here in the opposite of foolishness is a lack of that. Foolishness is a lack of fear of God. It means I love things that God hates and I hate things that God loves. So impiety, this lack of a fear of God is bound up in our children's hearts. Our kids are born with it. It's why at the age of nine months, they will hit another human being when they don't like something they did. Like, what person thinks it's okay to do that? I was playing with that, and you took it. Whack! It's why they will hit you at the age of nine months, even though you're a creature much larger than them who could do great harm to them with very little effort. I will not tell you which child it was, but I had a child who bit me. The sheer look of horror on their face when they realized what they had done afterwards was quite rewarding. (laughs) Because I could see in the child's eyes, my father's going to kill me. (laughs) But that's the point. That's foolishness. Like, what person thinks and sits down and goes, you know what? They, I can't believe they did that at work yesterday. You know what I'm going to do tomorrow? I'm just going to go up to them and bite them. No one thinks about biting somebody. It just happens. I hope. (laughs) I mean, when you hear about this happening, it's because something reacted. We were at Disney, I don't know, a couple years ago, and we were getting pizza just eaten in Italy in Epcot, and all of a sudden, this brawl breaks out. And it was over the fact that someone had taken someone's seat. And and it was a full-blown brawl. Women, too, are just punching faces, slapping, all sorts of things. People rolling on the ground. It was crazy. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. 
No one woke up that morning in that group said, you know what, if somebody takes my seat, I'm just going to punch them in the face. But someone had never grown up. They had a lack of a fear of God. This kind of folly, the idea that you just act, just react, and, and no fear of, of the fact that what I've done is a horrible, wicked thing, that's bound up in a child's heart. Do you know what that word bound up means? It means to conspire, to plot against. This is a reference, of course, to a child's sin nature. Children are born innocent, but they are not born good. Innocence means they don't understand evil per se. Children are born that way, but they're not born good. No child comes into the world going, I'm going to be completely honest and kind and just goodwill towards all mankind for the rest of my life. And then they get corrupted by a horrible parent that teaches them to lie and to steal and to hit. No, I never had to teach any of my kids to do those things. No child needs to be taught to lie or steal or hit. Sin is already conspiring inside of them against their heart, seeking to wrap it in chains. And so, loving physical discipline grabs the child's attention. That quick moment of trauma drives those chains of folly off their heart, giving them the ability to be instructed in the way their heart should be. I have, we'll talk about this later, but I had, all my kids were different. I had one that I could just look at and they'd start crying. And I had another one. I couldn't sit down and have a rational conversation with them until I gave them a spanking. It was almost like they were saying, please spank me. I'm out of control. I can't think properly right now. Seriously. And just give them a whack on the bottom and then we'd sit down a big, huge hug. And then we could actually have a conversation. It was almost like their whole system got reset. And they'd be like, oh, I'm a rational human being again. That's because chains of folly are wrapping tighter and tighter about their heart. When we do not give loving discipline, but instead we discipline out of annoyance, frustration, or disgust with our child's behavior, rather than correct them, we demean them. We condemn their hearts and then we become a new chain that distracts them from the real chains they can't see, the ones they need a parent to see. When we repeatedly abuse our authority rather than lead our children, we goad them to seek to overpower the new chain that we've put on them, to angrily seek freedom from that chain that they can see while all the more becoming bound by the one they cannot see and the one that a parent's job is to reveal through correction. If you are a parent this morning, I strongly recommend, in addition to reading your Bible, reading a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. If you have teenagers, I strongly recommend the book Age of Opportunity, because both of those books, they deal with a parent's heart first, and then they begin to lay the groundwork about training, what the Bible says about training your child's heart. If you want to parent correctly, your own heart has to be dealt with first. When we goad our children to become angry with us, it's because our goal is something other than leading their heart to the Lord. Which brings up an important question. 
If you're a parent this morning, what do you see when your child disobeys or when they make a bad decision? Are you angry with them because they should know better than that? Are you frustrated because they've ignored you? Are you irritated because now you have to invest unplanned time to engage with them on this topic again? Are you embarrassed because of what others will think of you because of what they did or said? All of those are self-oriented goals. They have nothing to do with leading our child's heart to the Lord. I frequently will hear from parents, you know, they need to respect me. But is your need for them to respect you because you want to be respected or because God says they need to respect you? There's a difference. It's a difference. What do you see? Do you see those things or is your heart broken because sin is seeking to wrap chains in your child's heart? When your concern is for your child's heart before God, then you have the ability to be firm and also compassionate at the same time, to not provoke them to wrath. But if your concern is for yourself or the trouble your child has caused you by their actions, then any attempts at discipline will be self-oriented. If I can tell you, one thing children can spot quickly in their parents is selfishness. They'll often point it out to you. One thing they can spot quickly is selfishness. And seeing it in you goads them to respond. Do not give the enemy, please do not give the enemy the means to distract your child from the chains that he is seeking to wrap their heart in. Be determined to not goad them to an angry response, but instead be determined to keep your cool and to keep leading your child's heart as your main goal. So, how do we lead our child's heart? Well, the negative command is followed now by the positive command. Instead of provoking them to wrath, it says, but instead bring them up. And the word but here is the strongest form of contrast in the Greek language. It's the exact opposite of goading them to an angry response. Instead, we bring them up. Again, one word, it means to bring them to maturity. This word, bring them up, it has physical, emotional, and spiritual maturity in mind. Your job as a parent is to equip your child so they are physically, emotionally, and spiritually ready to be loosed into the world. That's your job. You see, the cool thing is that we don't have to produce perfect kids because mature people aren't mistake-free. Mature people instead regularly make good decisions. They still have a ton to learn. But as Hebrews 5 puts it, they don't choke on solid food. They don't need milk anymore because they can handle solid food. They can figure out how to chew on it and to eventually swallow it so that they don't choke. In Hebrews 5, 13 through 15, when describing spiritual maturity, it says, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, mature. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, trained to discern both good and evil. A mature person has the ability to discern between good and evil, between wisdom and folly, between solid ground and catastrophe. A mature person recognizes that 
the person emailing you or calling you or texting you saying, hi, I've got this inheritance and I'm a prince in Nigeria or whatever it might be, and I'd love to share it with you or I need help. If you could just give me your social security number, I can wire it to your account. That rather than be pulled away by greed, they know that it goes, that lies catastrophe. That way is folly. Moms and dads, we are called to loose our child into the world as adults who still have much to learn, but who can discern between good and evil, wisdom and folly, solid ground and catastrophe. That way, that way they can learn from their inexperience and mistakes rather than end up making those life-ruining, life-altering decisions that plague a person for their entire life. Anybody here ever made one of those when you were young? Our job as parents is to bring them along so that they're on that path when we set them loose on the world. How do we do that? So we bring them up by focusing on two areas of development. It says, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. First off, nurture. The word nurture means to discipline, to chasten, to train. If any of you have ever been in a, a work environment where, where people need to have a skill set or learn a skill set to do the job, you know that training is required when a person is either ignorantly or willingly doing something wrong. You have to train them. Training means you point out the wrong behavior, and then you teach them the right behavior. To bring them up in the nurture of the Lord means we must discipline our child's wrong behavior or their wrong attitude. Only then will we successfully be able to bring them to maturity. In other words, discipline is not an optional part of parenting. And a parent that takes the time to discipline their child proves to them that they love them. Proverbs 13, 24 tells us that he who spares the rod hates his child. He that spares his rod hates his child, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. The word spares there means to hold back, to preserve, to keep someone safe from something. I I have never prayed that God would keep my kids safe from the consequences of their behavior. I have asked God to bust them every time, immediately. Immediately. Put a short leash on them, Lord, because I never want them to think that they can get away with sin. I never want them to think that it's okay or that God doesn't see it or that God doesn't care. You sparing your child from discipline is not being compassionate. It is being selfish because you don't want to put yourself through the pain of having to deal with them or having to see them in pain. Now, the word rod here, it describes a tool used to deal with violators. Sometimes this word for rod is used in the Bible in very extreme ways, uh, describing God's judgment on the wicked as a rod, or sometimes it describes a city leader administering a public beating to a lawbreaker. But sometimes it's also used in a more gentle way, like Psalm 23, verse 4, where it says, your rod and staff, they comfort me. There, it describes the rod that the shepherd carried to beat off the wolves, but how he would also use it to comfort the sheep by gently jolting them back in the right direction. You just give a little whack, 
The problem with sheep is we're not very bright. Sheep are not smart at all. They got very small brains. And so they can easily wander off because they get skittish or afraid or whatever it might be, curious. They just wander off. And so the shepherd, you know, if he sees a sheep wandering off, he comes alongside with a rod and he just goes, whack. And the sheep, whoop, where am I? And they, oh, I'm over, supposed to be over here. And then they come back over and everything's good. They're like, oh, yay, I'm back with family again. I know I've described this to you before, but there's a condition called ovine ineptitude. It's not a good thing. And it's what happens is when a sheep gets away from the herd and it's out by itself, it becomes terrified when it realizes it's out by itself. And it begins doing this. Because it's terrified of doing anything. In fact, that's where we get the phrase, in a rut. Because going back and forth, they're not very athletic either, back and forth they create a little groove in the ground and they eventually fall into it. And then when they fall, they're so scared they don't do anything that they either starve or get eaten by a predator. So the shepherd, instead of when he sees a sheep off there and beginning to go that path, knowing where it's going to lead, he doesn't go, oh, but I don't want to hurt him with my little rod here. I love that sheep. No, he goes, I don't want him to end in a rut. Whack. And then the sheep, oh, come back over where he's supposed to be. And then the sheep is good because he's in a good place. Now, disciplining my child isn't about putting my foot down or even punishing their sin. Punishment is about wrath and consequences. Discipline is about loving training. And so that's why it says here, instead, he that loves him chastens him betimes. The word chasten means correct. And then the word betimes means with diligence or to look early in the morning for opportunities to do something. Now, it doesn't mean I wake up looking for an opportunity to discipline my kid. But what it means is worthy parenting requires that I embrace my responsibility to correct my child. It means that I will act quickly and early rather than wait when they sin. It means I embrace my responsibility to gently jolt my child in the right direction. Now, as I said, every child is different. So how that happens specifically may look different for every parent maybe even different for each child in your family. But every parent must take seriously the responsibility to engage, to look for opportunities to correct their sinful behaviors or attitudes. Let me tell you something not to do, parents. Do not ever do this. I'm going to count to three. Don't do that. What you're telling them is, it's not your sin that's the problem. The problem is, is I'm going to get annoyed. The problem is there's going to come a point when your sin is going to be so far that now I have to do something about it. No, I don't tell my child. I say, come here. And then if they don't come, you discipline them. It's not you got three seconds to obey. No, it's you missed your second. You missed your second. Now there must be discipline. And that way it's not about you. You remove yourself from the equation. It's funny when you start to do this as a parent and your kids are used to one, two, three. And you say, come over here. And then you just go get them. You're like, wait, I thought I had three more seconds to sin. You don't have any time where it's okay to sin. But see, that's the mentality we have to begin to invest into our kids. 
immediate violation, immediate discipline. Even if that means it's just a conversation. The point is, you don't give them opportunities to stay in sin. If you let things slide or you only engage when you're annoyed or others are annoyed or when they've gone too far, you are not nurturing your child like Paul commands here. If your child is speaking rudely to you or to your spouse or to the siblings, you don't tolerate it, you don't justify it, you deal with it every time, consistently. Otherwise, the message you're sending is that it's not really wrong, it's just wrong if they go too far or if someone else is annoyed. When our kids were fighting over a toy when they were little, I would say, bring me the toy. And then they'd bring me the toy and I'd set it on my desk. I'd go, it's mine now. No one's playing with it. And you might hear the phrase, my kids learned to never do this when they were little. I had it first. Oh, tell me where in the Bible that's the rule, that if you had it first, you get to keep it. Does the Bible even hint at anything along those lines? Or maybe does it hint at something else about being unselfish? If this toy is so important that you would rather have it and make your sibling upset, or was more important that you would cause a fight with your sibling over it, then this toy has way too much priority in your heart, and it needs to go over here. And then you turn to the other one. What made you think it was okay to take the toy from your sibling? What, do you think you have the right to just take things from people when you want them? Well, he's had it for two hours. Tell me in the Bible where it says that the time limit for having something is two hours, and then if they don't give it to you when you ask nicely, you get to take it. This is selfishness. And again, this is now you get to the heart of the issue. Do you understand the heart of the issue? This toy was so important to you that you decided to make up your own rule and your own law and your own Bible that governed how you behaved. That's idolatry. Yes, you tell your 11-month-old, that's idolatry. I want my kids to grow up knowing they're loved in spite of their sin, but I don't want them to grow up thinking they're good. Because my job isn't to lead them to a place where they're willing to say a prayer with me. My job is to lead them to a place where they recognize their sin and their need for a Savior, and they run to Jesus, not me. I want them to so seriously encounter what it means to be forgiven of all their sin, that Jesus loves them in spite of all their sin that there comes a point where they don't need me anymore. Because then, I know they'll be just fine. No matter how much they fail, no matter how many mistakes they make. I'll know they've experienced the grace of God and, and that that's something they won't get away from. Parents' job when correcting a child is to get to the heart of the matter. That means you have to ask hard questions. Why did you think it was okay to do that? Why do you think it was okay to talk to someone like that? What do you think God thinks about what you just did or what you just said? Does what God thinks about what you did and said concern you? And if it doesn't concern you, does it concern you that you don't care about what God thinks about what you said or did? These are the questions you have to ask. Because my job, again, is not to get them to behave a certain way. My job is to get to the heart of the matter, which is their heart is bound up in folly and Satan is seeking to wrap chains around it, but Jesus wants to set them free. That's my goal. I'm a big, huge spotlight shining on their heart, trying to help them to see 
Now, when they're little, little, you can't necessarily ask some of those questions. I can't ask a nine-month-old, do you care about what God thinks about your behavior? No. That's why a spanking is necessary when they're young, to jolt them so you can at least have a basic conversation. But the older they get, you're going to have to engage their wrong behavior with these types of questions every time it happens, consistently. There could be no laziness on your part or going easy on them as some false sense of compassion. You know where compassion comes in as a parent? When you see contrition. When you see contrition about their sin, that's when compassion can be activated. When I see them looking at me going, Dad, I don't know what to do. I don't know why I do that. That's when I can wrap my arms around them. I can go, I understand. I do those things too. And Jesus still loves you. And if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you look to him and present your body a living sacrifice to him, his spirit will come inside and help you to live for him just like he does it in my life. But you don't show compassion to someone whose heart's hard. You ask questions. You administer discipline. Now, on the conversation of discipline, I think it's important to point out in Isaiah 10.5 that God, des- God describes the nation of Assyria as his rod to correct Israel. But Isaiah 10 goes on to say how Assyria didn't see this as a stewardship from God. They saw it as their own will. In Isaiah 10.15, the Lord says, shall the axe boast against him who holds the haft? So the person who wields the staff the staff boasts against the person who wields the staff? He says, that's absurd. They went too far. They didn't realize they were just a tool. And so God judged them. If you go beyond your job as a parent like Assyria did and you speak cruel words or you belittle your child or you physically harm your child by doing more than just spanking them, then you have decided that this is your deal, that they're your kid and they're not just a tool, you're not just a steward. And when you decide you can treat your child however you wish, that is not discipline, that is called sin. And woe to the parent who thinks that way because God will deal with you. So we nurture them, we discipline them. Secondly, we teach them. It says, bring them up also in the admonition of the Lord. The word admonition, it means simply that, teaching, instruction. If all we do is point out our child's wrongs or probing them with questions so that they can see their wrongs and see what's in their heart, then that's only half of worthy parenting. We must also teach them the right way. And this is primarily verbal, this instruction. Worthy parenting requires conversations with your child. The word here conveys the idea of causing a person to take something to heart by your words. This includes encouragement when they think they'll never get it right or exhortation when they're being lazy or fearful or stubborn. It includes comfort when they feel condemned by the enemy. And again, this includes asking questions about why they did what they did, what they planned to do about it, and also instruction on how to overcome the heart behind those wrong behaviors. A lot of times I'll ask my child after we've had a conversation, I'll say, what are you going to do now? I don't know. Okay, well, I don't know is not an acceptable answer for how you spoke to your mom. So, how are you going to talk to the Lord about this? Do you think you should do that? Yeah. When do you plan to do this? I don't know. I don't know is not an acceptable answer. So, 
I'm not saying you have to do it right now, but when do you plan to do this? You need to make a decision. If I still get an I don't know, then I help them make that decision. And I say, okay, well, you need to do this. At least talk to the Lord about it. So you're here until you do. Come on out and let me know when you have. And then let me know what your plan is. And then if your child comes out and you say you talk to the Lord about it, yes, what did he say? I should say sorry to mom. Is that all he said? I don't know. How about, did he possibly tell you that you need to say, mom, talking to you like I did was wrong and not respectful? I'm very sorry for that. Anything like that? Yeah, kind of. Okay, well, what do you plan to say to mom then? Sorry. And what else do you think you should say to mom? These are the types of things you have to do and not get frustrated with them. They don't know. This is part of your job. Teach them. Parenting requires, this way requires that you know the Bible. <laughs> to know how to find victory in your own life even though you'll st you still fall short. It requires time and love and not being satisfied with surface answers. It requires asking hard, even sometimes awkward questions where you might not like some of the answers they give and then to love them in spite of the answers you don't like. It requires crying out to God for your kids and for the wisdom necessary to converse with them in a meaningful way. Over and over and over again, we see this phrase in the Proverbs, my son, listen to your father's instruction. That means there's instruction going on. Our job is not to browbeat or deride, it's to confront sin, to discipline sin, to instruct on how not to sin, and then comfort with the same grace God shows us when we confess our sin. Our goal is to stir them up, to confess their sin, to lay bare the battle going on in their heart so that we can steer them to the only one who can help them overcome, which is not you and me, it's Jesus. This takes making time to have difficult conversation. It takes patience as they repeatedly fail in similar areas or refuse to open up to you about their thoughts on their behavior or don't care about their behavior. It takes prayer for wisdom. It takes time to ask God to intervene in your child's heart. In other words, it takes hard work to be a parent. But it's no one else's responsibility to do it for your kids, is it? If you're a parent, God's called you to that task. And you will either embrace this God-given duty or you will not. So my exhortation to you this morning is please embrace it. Please. Now one last thought. I know I've gone late, but I want to finish out the verse. It mentions the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The sphere in which we parent is the Lord. In other words, when I need to act as a parent, my question needs to be, what does the Lord say? What does the Lord want me to do? What does the Lord do when He's in these situations? We don't figure out those answers by just imagining what God might do. We know the answers to those questions by looking at the Scriptures, by looking at what God did, and by looking at what God says He is like. So worthy parenting means being in the Word, guys. Only then can we develop our children in the training and the teaching of the Lord. Now. As the worship team comes up, I leave you with this promise. Worthy parenting, like Paul describes it here, comes with a beautiful promise. It says, train a child up in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. That phrase, the way that he should go, it means toward the opening of his road. 
In other words, it describes a path that a child must take to reach responsible godly adulthood, the path that Paul's talking about here. That phrase, will not depart from it, means they will not of their own volition turn aside from out of it. In other words, this is not a guarantee that your child will choose responsible godly adulthood, but it is a guarantee that no matter how stubborn they are, they won't have the ability to get away from everything you've instilled into them. And that's a good promise, isn't it? I want my kids to grow up knowing no matter what, what the truth is, that God loves them, that this is right, and that this is wrong. They have to make the choice to do right instead of wrong, but I want them to be loosed into the world with every tool they need to know how to do that. That's my job. And while it might break my heart if they don't choose that other path, I will at least have the comfort of knowing they know they're not on the right path, which means there's still hope that they can turn around. Now, the requirement for that blessing is to train them. And that is not fulfilled by telling your child, well, we're a Christian family, or even by going to church on Sunday morning. It's not even fulfilled by having all the right doctrine. Too often I find our Christianity is defined by what we say we believe rather than how we actually live. I told you earlier that kids can see through selfishness very easily. There's one other thing they see through very easily, and it's hypocrisy. They are watching what you do to see if they should watch what you say. That doesn't mean you need to be a perfect Christian or a perfect parent to effectively train your child in the way that they need to go. But it does mean consistency, genuineness, true pursuit of your own relationship with Jesus, putting a priority in your family on spiritual things, and supernatural love, which means as parents, we need to be serious about our own walk with the Lord. If we want to influence our kids and train them up, we have to be walking with Jesus. Let's all stand. Lord, again, we sang that song, I live to give you praise. I live for no one else, none but you. When you call, I won't delay. Well, Lord, if, if we aren't a child, <laughs> you've called us either to parent our kids faithfully or to influence the younger people around us. So, Lord, you've made a clear call this morning as we've looked at your word. So, Lord, for every person who right now is saying, Lord, I will not delay. You've spoken things to my heart. I want to parent in a worthy way. Lord, I pray you would encourage them. I pray that if there's sin they're confessing, Lord, that you would forgive them and let them know they're forgiven. And, Lord, that you would empower them to live in a worthy way as it concerns their influence of the younger people in their lives. Lord, let us be a people who grab hold of that responsibility and invest the time necessary to pass on our relationship with you, not just the truth of what we believe, but our relationship with you to the next generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.